0: Well, what I want to share uh, with you guys um, is something I've been working on uh, in some way, shape, or form. I guess for about the last ten years, in large part just for myself um, as a son whose whose father passed away ten years ago. Um, my dad was sick with Parkinson's disease for for several years and, and died in, in 2013. And I loved him very much. I know he loved me, but we had a complicated relationship uh, in some ways, kind of painful. Uh, so that needed some work. Um, so first of all, just for myself. But of course, also over the years, I've met and spoken with many guests um, in our livery, um, for whom this was also a very live issue. Uh, whether their parents were still alive uh, or not, uh, they were trying to think through uh, the things Uh, how the things we experience as children at the hands of our parents, how that affects us as adults, Uh, how we think, uh, how we act, the choices we make, uh, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And as it's part of our mission uh, in Brie to explore all the ways uh, God's word is relevant to every aspect of life, it was important to me. Uh, to search out, okay, what does the Bible tell us about how we are built, how we're put together by the creator, uh, how we can be healed uh, by uh, the redeemer, how we can be helped onto a healing path, um, and how we can be led to grow and to develop by the spirit. And, of course, though, you hear it already there in the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that includes the word and the concept, Father, Uh, And that's where I think for a lot of us, whether we grew up in a Christian home or not, whether we would now even call ourselves Christians or not, this is where it's important to see what the Bible says about God as a father. um, And what God says about how we can think about our experiences with our earthly fathers. Uh, It's an important part of understanding what uh, the Christian gospel is because it can go wrong with parents, can't it? Uh, it often does, no parent is perfect. I'm now also a father, four kids, four teenagers, and, but I'll tell you, um, it's, it's one of the worst, most difficult things you can imagine to realize some of the mistakes you make with your own children. Uh, these precious gifts entrusted into your care, still we mess it up, um, sometimes by accident, Sometimes because of tough circumstances, but sometimes just because we don't want to try harder in the moment. It's a terrible thing uh, to admit, to see in yourself, but it's something I think all parents will know if they're honest. And as I wrote uh, in the description about the lecture, I hope uh, you all saw that, but what, what I won't be, will not be focusing on tonight is how to reconcile uh, with parents or how to confront them or even really how to continue in the relationship with parents who have hurt us. Uh, that's a whole other topic. That's very worthwhile. It's very important. Uh, maybe in the discussion time, uh, we can talk about some good resources, for that topic, if, if people are interested. But what I do want to focus on uh, for tonight is what I've learned has to happen first anyway. <clears throat> and that's simply to look at myself Uh, at what I experienced and how that has affected me Um, and and what the Christian gospel has then to say to me uh, about that between me and God okay that's the focus tonight and I guess that's why I thought maybe a better title later uh, I thought might be simply to call the lecture Wounds That Confuse Uh, Wounds That Confuse because that's what we'll be talking about That's what we'll be focusing on for tonight. Now, I'm going to give away a little bit already here at the beginning about where we're headed. A book that has meant a lot to me in my study of this topic is a book by the writer Henry Nowen, um, The Return of the Prodigal Son. Some of you may have heard of this book. Um, It's a good one. Uh, As you might guess, he's presenting his thoughts about the biblical story told by Jesus the parable of the prodigal son that's recorded um, in the gospel of Luke chapter 15. But actually the book is is more about how he himself interacts with that story through contemplating a painting by Rembrandt. Okay, The painting you see there on the cover, this painting depicting uh, the final scene of that story uh, of the prodigal son. Among the many Interesting and important things uh, uh, Henry Nowen talks about as he makes um, as he goes back to this painting again and again and thinks more about the story. One thing in particular has stood out for me uh, in this book. But um, when we think about what we can learn from this parable, uh, or what what Jesus wanted his listeners to think about, we're told we can sometimes maybe find ourselves in the character of the younger son uh, who runs away. Wastes his inheritance on bad decisions, then comes to his senses, right? and comes back to confess what he's done, but to his surprise, he's welcomed, uh, he's embraced, he's even honored by his loving and gracious father. Um, or maybe we're told we can find ourselves in the character of the older brother. Uh, you remember maybe full of frustration and jealousy when he sees how gracious the father is or his brother. He's angry that somebody seems to get off so easily. Uh, But then he also is reassured and and comforted and honored uh, by the father and encouraged to come on in and celebrate alongside everybody else. These are good lessons. Uh, They can apply to us all at different moments, maybe remembering how God the father looks at us. But now and does something special. He takes it a step further in this book. Uh, This was a new one for me. He says that the point of the story, as Jesus intended it, was not just to have this pretty ending with the party. Uh, The point is actually that the party is now just the beginning of a new life for these sons. Uh, now these boys, these sons, have to grow up and to become uh, adults themselves. And, And what kind of men would they become? That's the question. Would they, in the grace and the love that they have received from their father, would they now also become men who would treat other people with the same grace and love? Uh, Would they follow, as it were, in their father's footsteps? Okay, so it's not just about what they received uh, from their father. Um, It's about what did they learn. Uh, what can they take forward? Okay, for the younger son, you could say to stand up. Um, for the older son, to to come on in, uh, both to understand their worth, uh, in the proper light, and to receive the father's blessing, that healing, blessing. But then to be able to pass that on. Okay, that's the point of the story. Not that it stops with the blessing, that we receive or the healing we receive, but that we discover how, that also changes us and frees us and let us grow. Um, and lets the blessing uh, multiply, okay? Well, Now, that touches me. That was a new point of the story, I think. And the point is, then, no matter what has gone wrong in my life, especially my life as a child, if I can meet God as my true father, I can rediscover what it means to be a child, right? I can receive as a child what God has to give me, Jesus himself says that only with the eyes of a child can I understand this even. So there's a chance with God to become free as a child again, like these sons, to be open for what God has to offer to receive that, no matter what has happened. But then there is also, um, as the Apostle Paul later tells us, uh, there is a way to be childlike without being childish anymore. To leave childish things behind. Uh, and in that way, also rediscover what it means to become free as an adult. Okay, then also to pass on the blessings that we ourselves have learned to receive. Okay, so to, to become restored, you could say, in being a child and in being an adult. And okay, that's what's being offered here. And I think that, that's what I want to explore uh, with you all now. How, how does this work? Okay, there's, there's many, many books, uh, I think, and podcasts and lectures available, uh, courses you can take, even therapies, uh, all which address the influence of our parents on our development as people. There's also many, even from a specific Christian uh, perspective, uh, but most of them, I've found, many of them will spend time talking about what we could call uh, the wound, the wounds, Uh, We receive as children uh, from from our parents. Okay, the injury, maybe you could say we we ran into somewhere in our developmental years Uh, a wound which in some ways seems to have scarred us for life. You could even say Um, some much more serious than others, but everybody has something that we think about, especially in relationship to our parents. Okay, maybe that one moment or that place, uh, what was said what was done physically, verbally, emotionally, direct or indirect, whatever, there's often some uh, situation we can identify as, yes, that's it, that's where I was hurt, that's where it got me, that's where I was wounded. And uh, the point of these uh, therapeutic approaches um, is to say that in that wound, Um, or or maybe it's better to say from from that wound, we have taken something with us into our adult lives. Something that was never healed, you might say. But also, uh, maybe even more importantly, something that was not right or something that maybe even was not true. Um, We learned something that was false in that wound about who we are, about the way that the world works, something uh, false about how to view ourselves, how to view relationships, maybe even something false about who God is uh, and what it means to trust and to believe in in the God of the Bible, okay? Something that's not true. Um, And it's not fair that this lie was pushed onto us and into us as, as kids. Um, And and it might have then led to a limited and restricted understanding of what it means to be living freely as an adult. Okay, So the point is often, unless you uncover, unless we uncover that false belief, it continues to have this impact on how we live in ways that are not right, uh, not true, not correct, not healthy. So how can we start to look at that? Um, It's the question. Well, one interesting tool uh, I've found comes from a psychotherapist working over 100 years ago uh, named Alfred Adler. Uh, I can't and I won't uh, defend everything uh, from his theories, but one thing I find really helpful uh, and interesting from his approach. Often Adler would begin his sessions with clients um, uh, with a simple question, try to think back to the earliest memory you have in your life. Uh, Maybe it's one scene, maybe it's more, but as far back as you can remember, okay? Try try to see it again. And Adler then asks them to describe not just uh, what was happening there uh, or who was there even, but most importantly, what was your feeling at that moment? Can you recapture what your feeling was in that scene? Is it happy? Is it scared? Is it confused? Is it hurt? Uh, Whatever you felt at that moment, try to recall it. And the point isn't so much to be able to reconstruct uh, a factual history, although that can be important for for other reasons, and we'll come to that. But for this exercise, he was simply looking for the moment when they began, began consciously. Uh, to build their understanding of how the world works and what kind of feelings were associated with that, okay? He's looking for the basic uh, building blocks in their foundation of their beliefs about themselves, uh, about other people, and just about life. And Because he believed, if if I can remember something, or, or more importantly, if I can remember how I felt at a very early scene, early as possible, then it's likely to be something that I began building into my understanding about the world and my place in it, okay? What the laws of the world are, you could say, how it all works. Uh, Adler said this, uh, the first memory will show the individual's fundamental view of life, his first satisfactory crystallization of his attitude. He says, I would never investigate a personality without asking for the first memory. Now, again, I don't think it's so crucial. It has to be absolutely exactly the very first memory or something like that. Just a very early one uh, or maybe several. And again, I'm I'm not arguing for Adler's theory in general as a key to unlocking all of our beliefs or anything like that. But I do find this an interesting and a fruitful exercise, especially if one of those early memories has to do with parent, I remember uh, one young guy in La Brie some years ago, uh, he told me, and I have his permission uh, to tell this story. He told me that he had worked really hard writing a story. He remembered as a child, writing a story, he wrote it all out and with some pride and some anxiety, he brought it to his father uh, who was a professor uh, he brought it to his father in his study in his office. Here, Dad, I, I wrote this story. And what his father did was to take those papers and, and he put them on top of a pile of things that he needed to do that day uh, on his desk later. And the boy saw that and he left. But when he later came to check again to see if his father had read it, his father wasn't there. And he saw that the pages of his story had fallen off of the pile onto the floor. Uh, Even a couple of pages had fallen into the trash can. And what this guy said to me was whatever had happened, uh, accident or not, he he could imagine as a grown up, you know, all the things that might have happened, whether this was on purpose or not. But he remembered feeling at that moment, I should never have done it. I should never have given it to him. Look what happens when you do that. Okay. Or I remember another young woman uh, who was here in the breach. She told me, again, I tell her, share it with her permission, that her father, when, when her father would come home from work, he would always ask the kids to come and give him a kiss when he came in the door. Uh, they would all run in uh, to, to welcome him and, and give him a kiss. But one day she thought, I'm not going to do it. Instead of going to him, I'm going to wait and see if he comes to me to give me a kiss. So she did. And after the mom and the other kids did what they always did, they ran in the hall, gave him a kiss. Well, he just hung up his coat and went to the back room and didn't even seem to notice that she had not come. And what she said was whatever happened, again, looking back, she could imagine. What, you know, he might have just been busy or didn't notice, whatever, whether it was an accident or not, what she felt at that moment was, I should never have done that. Look what happens when you do such a thing. Uh, The boy, I I should never have dared to write a story, to be creative and come up with something myself and be proud of it and think that it mattered. And I certainly should not have looked for approval from others from it. You'll only be disappointed if you do, he thought. Or the woman, I should never have dared to do that, to, to not go along with someone, else, someone else's image of what love is. I shouldn't have dared to think I also have a voice in it or to ask someone to come my way. You'll only be disappointed uh, if you do that, okay? Now, what follows for a child in such a moment is huge confusion, right? Feelings of anger, maybe shame, frustration, Sadness, they're all mixed up together in, in a whole whirlwind. Um, and usually at a young age, not, not able to even distinguish those or separate them or understand them. Um, in another very helpful book uh, called How People Grow, um, uh, psychologists Henry Cloud and John Townsend say that in this angry and confused whirlwind, something very interesting happens uh, for a child. They say anger is actually a sense of protest and fight. And these are Christian uh, psychologists and they describe how God wired this emotion into us to be against something, okay? Anger has this purpose. Uh, We use anger to fight injustice, uh, unrighteousness, evil. Uh, Anger is a a problem-solving emotion, you could say. It's designed to protect what is good and what is valuable. The problem is that anger is directional and it has to be aimed at something. And it should be aimed at injustice or person who's being unjust. But if this is not possible, then people will aim the anger at themselves uh, instead. And in such a situation, you can say, a, a child can conclude, well, I am bad if this is happening to me. Now, we'll come back to this again in a moment, uh, but the point for now is just, uh, is one that many different therapists will, will write about, many books cover this, that if we look back at such a moment um, in our childhood and we know that we were feeling upset when this happened, I- even if it was a misunderstanding, and sometimes, of course, even worse if it wasn't, um, You know, if a parent was giving a more direct rejection, This feeling of confusion, anger, at the unfairness or the injustice of the situation, it needs a direction. And without a developed framework for really knowing what is right and wrong, without a developed idea, really, of what is fair or just, a child is left to deal with this feeling alone. And the anger can shoot in any direction. Am, am I now supposed to be angry at my father who ignored me, uh, who hurt me, whether he meant to or not? Or, or should I be mad at myself for even daring to want anything in the first place? Who's really to blame? Okay? That's the confusion in the child's mind, in the child's heart. Who's to blame? And in a desperate attempt to get some control back in this suddenly confusing universe, Uh, in a desperate move to regain some understanding uh, or some order in this moment of pain, the child begins, as Adler says, to draw some conclusions about the world, to conclude, okay, there must be some laws out there, some kind of law. If I do A, then B will happen. Okay. That's what I should expect now. That's how the world works. Okay. Even if it's painful, right? This is what I now at least know. This gives me some sense of control, okay? This isn't so conscious for the child, but this is often what happens. And sadly, sadly, what often happens at this very moment is not just that the child concludes that they have discovered some kind of law. The child often also makes a decision, okay? If this is the way the world works, if this is the law, that I've discovered, then this is how I must respond. This is the way to survive. And, and what that often means is that the child takes some kind of oath, consciously or unconsciously, and makes some kind of promise. Um, a writer uh, and therapist, Leanna Payne, uh, describes this uh, really well. She says, the, the grievous reaction a child has to a parent who deserts or harms or frustrates it in one way or another often leads to a childhood oath, especially regarding fathers. Uh, I will never ever love him again. I will never ever be like him when I grow up. I will never allow him to get to me again. I will will wipe him out of my world, okay? These kinds of severe Ideas. Now, again, it's not so conscious or maybe so uh, with such words for a child, but this is what can happen inside. You can hear how it goes. There is this assumed law about the world and the reaction follows. Um, My father's love can make mistakes, so I must not dare to want his love anymore. It's not safe. Being adult like him means making mistakes. So I must not grow up like him. Uh, Letting people close to you, daring to look for their approval or reaction is dangerous. So I must not do that again. I must not let that happen again. Now, of course, there's a bit of truth in in, in what the child concludes, right? Things can go wrong. Uh, No parent is perfect, but for a child, trying to regain some control or some understanding in this world in such a confusing and such a stressful moment, it it can result in this kind of extreme self-protective promise. And, of course, the problem is then, while in the beginning, at that moment, it's it's directed to the parent, it it quickly takes on a general, the character of a general law, about all kinds of relationships, right? Oh, okay. Not just about dad, but apparently love can make mistakes. So I should not dare to want love. Period. Being adult means making mistakes. So I shouldn't grow up. Uh, letting people close to me at all means pain. Therefore, I should not let people close. Okay, so you can see what happens in this attempt to protect myself, the child. Decides to refuse to give the parent something anymore, but it gets generalized into something much larger, and it ends up limiting me in a way that isn't true and isn't right, okay? This, this angry longing for justice shoots out way beyond the parent, uh, beyond refusing something to the parent, and it turns into refusing something for myself. I refuse love. I refuse adulthood, I refuse intimacy, okay? And this, this becomes the tragic point, but what was meant to protect me, okay? in that justice-directed sense of anger and confusion, it ends up handicapping me, uh, cheating me, even punishing me, you could say, okay? Um, the injustice, you could say, gets carried on further through the child's own oath and and suddenly what was in the first instance um, directed at the parent becomes this general oath of self-protection against teachers, against employers, against friends, against partners, against church leaders, even against your own children if that day comes. And even then in this relationship, We are told we can have with God who dares to call himself a father. Now, the thing is, these oaths, they can work for a while. They do offer a kind of protection for a while. It often does work. Some people can live and function for years under this kind of self-protective oath, shielding themselves from potentially painful situations that could remind them of this early disappointment. But eventually, for most people, a conflict uh, will arise. (sighs) Okay, there's something about us as humans. And we'll come back to this because uh, it fits with what the Bible teaches us about who we are and how we are built. But something about us as humans doesn't want to follow that oath at a certain point anymore. I I still do want to be loved and to give love. I do want to grow up and take responsibility for things. I do want to let people close. Okay, this other desire is, is there and it comes into conflict with that oath. It's an enormous struggle uh, because something else in me has decided from an early age that that's not possible. Okay, so this, this conflict can take up an enormous amount of energy, uh, can lead to an enormous amount of anxiety or uh, depression, even cynicism. And it's exactly this struggle where we are offered a growing freedom. In the Christian gospel. Okay, so that's what I want to turn to. Of course, for some people, it's very important uh, when tackling or unraveling these issues, it's very important to seek professional counseling, psychological help. There's a lot of expertise available for identifying uh, these patterns in your life, uh, challenging them, redirecting them. Um, but I think it's also, um, Very important to realize that alongside that kind of help, there is a basic message in the Bible that is very helpful to hear, uh, to really be able to listen to and to let it sink in right at the point, at this point of conflict. Um, Because just just like our oaths or these early conclusions that we draw uh, about how the world works or how we're built or what we can expect in life. God's word also has something to tell us about how the world works, about how we are built, about what we can expect and long for in life. And it can be very worthwhile to compare these messages and to consider which ones are really true and valid, which ones make the most sense uh, of who we are and which ones can we trust. Now, I'm not going to address the question, uh, where, where was God when certain things happened to me? Why did God let this happen? I think that's a really difficult question. It often remains unanswered. But the other question, uh, which is at least as important, I do want to address, uh, and that is, where is God now? Right now, as I sit here struggling with this conflict, And with these memories and these wounds, with these oaths, maybe, and these laws, which I seem to be carrying around within me, Uh, maybe even going against my very nature and and going against things that are good for me. Where is God now? And what we hear in the Bible, uh, an answer to this question is at least three important things. And this is what I want to look at with you now in some detail. But First, I'll tell you just what they are. First, God recognizes that the wounds that we have are painful. He recognizes it as a real hurt, even has sympathy with us, we're told, with the way that we've responded to it, even if it was wrong, a wrong response, because God understands that it hurts. Now, alongside that sympathy uh, he has with our pain and even the oaths and the laws that we came up with as children, There is also often a very strong encouragement to see ourselves and the world differently than we do, to be corrected by his laws as the one who actually made this world and made us. And God promises justice according to his law, that those who break his beloved creation must answer for what they've done, either by his righteous hand or blood of Christ. And we'll come back to all these points. And third, then, and this is really the main point, God also offers a promise of a new direction as an alternative to that path that we have been on from that moment. A new path that will allow us to grow away from fighting against ourselves according to false laws and to learn how to stand up and live as free people in grace and in truth. These three points I want to look at. Do these look like? Well first about the about the wound. There's a very strong message in the Bible that it is wrong to hurt and to mislead children by hurting them. you could say a very strong message against doing things to children that would cause them to take a wrong path. Some of you might remember a scene in the Gospels. Uh, It's recorded in Matthew chapter 18 and and also in Luke 17, where Jesus allows and asks the little children to come to him, right? And maybe uh, this seems like a sweet scene uh, where Jesus is smiling at the children. They jump on his lap or whatever. But if you look at that text, something else happens at that moment as well. It is exactly at this moment that Jesus then says to the adults who are standing around there, whoever causes any one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be cast into the sea to drown. Okay, in other words, that guy better be afraid of the judgment that is coming. Now you can imagine, imagine this scene. The children who are standing near Jesus or maybe sitting on his lap, they hear this as well. They, with Jesus, they are looking out at the adults as he says this. Now, what would they be thinking? Would they be afraid? Like, who is this scary, violent man suddenly? Maybe get me out of here. Or would they be thinking, okay, this this man Has my back. He's promising to give a very strong answer to everything and everyone who leads me off the path, the true path of who I am, by hurting me. Okay, he's promising right now, if and when that does happen, he will know, uh, he will name it as wrong, and he will give it an answer. Okay? So, there is a recognition here um, of what that child la- later might encounter as a wound, that the tears and the anger and the confusion, they will be seen and heard by God, by Jesus, the son, and they will be answered okay, in God's timing with justice. But first, I think it's important to realize that the children feel recognized in this moment. Um, before something like that has even happened. In Psalm 139, um, David, King David asks God at the end of the psalm, search me and know me. See if there is in me any offensive way, godless way or grievous way, depending on the translation. Now, and, and set me on the everlasting one. Um, well, if you look um, at the original Hebrew of that psalm, you will see that the phrase, um, any godless or offensive way in me, literally, literally what it says there is, see where I am walking on a path of pain. See, search me and know me and see where I am walking on a path of pain. Okay, A path that knows or maybe even causes pain. And take me off that path and set me on the path of pain. Eternal life and truth. Okay? So, again, God recognizes this path, these paths where I have been misled, uh, hurt, deceived. Those are paths of pain, they are called. Okay? Maybe I was put on such a path by someone who hurt me. Uh, I was misled in my ideas about myself and the world. But, But now search me, he says, and see if I am still walking on that path when I don't need to. Uh, The path where I shouldn't dare to create something or to ask for someone's approval. The the path where I shouldn't dare to want to have a voice in what love means. Uh, The path where I'm afraid of growing up or taking responsibility for a fear of making mistakes. See where I am walking on such a path of pain. Help me to see it too. And, and lead me on another path, uh, the path of Shalom, which you intended for, okay? This is where we're headed. Now you might say at first glance, wow, that sounds wonderful and freeing, right? Um, but let's be honest, it, it's pretty painful uh, to have to admit and to recognize um, and to realize even maybe that the ways I live or have been living, ways I've been thinking the laws and the oaths, which I may have been using to protect myself and to guide my life, it's painful to realize that they aren't good, and that they have their root in a deep wound. Uh, as freeing as it may become to see this, at first it's not fun. Uh, it's first of all sad, and it's and it's deeply confronting and difficult. Um, I have some real questions about the vision of masculinity that uh, John Eldridge presents in his book, Wild at Heart. And if you wanna ask me afterwards, that I'll be happy to tell you, explain that. But, but in that book, John Eldridge speaks some very, very good words about what it means to look honestly at our wounds. Uh, in short, we would rather not. <laughs> Uh, we, we would rather just go on with our, our coping mechanisms in many cases, even if they are continuing to hurt us. And, and this is where God says the point isn't just to be corrected. It's not just to be shown what's wrong. The first point is God's compassion to recognize how much this hurts, how much it hurt when it happened, and how much it hurts now to face up to this problem. John Eldridge writes, uh, many people simply deny that they have a wound, that it hurts, and and certainly that it may be determining the choices they make and how to live now. But, he adds, a wound cannot be healed if it isn't recognized and if tears have not been shed over it. If tears haven't been shed over it. Now, I've always found it very special, um, a very special story in the Gospels that, on the very, very first Easter morning, uh, when Jesus was walking along with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, who don't yet recognize him. Some of you will remember the story. Jesus asks them, why are you sad? It's good to go back and look at that story. Jesus asks them when he's walking, by, them, why, why are you sad? And they say, what? Are you the only one? Who doesn't know what has been happening in Jerusalem for the past few days. And it's, it's kind of ironic. Because of course Jesus knows. He was the center of, of everything that was happening. But what is his response to them? Well if you look. He simply asks them. What th- things? And then they tell him. And they tell them, They tell him all their confusion. And their frustration. And before correcting them which he slowly begins to do later. First, he wants to hear in their words, where they are. That's the point of how the narrative rolls. First, he wants to know, why are you sad? Tell me, what things? Not because he doesn't know, he wants them to express it. And it's important that the relationship and the recognition and the empathy are first uh, receiving attention in his interaction with them, right? It's important that they feel him coming toward them in this way and not just expecting them to come to him. In fact, it's funny in this story, a few moments later, it says literally that Jesus acts like he was gonna go further. And instead of just telling them to follow him as he did with others, in this case, they say, no, 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 come back home with us, where we are, where we live, and Jesus does. He does. That's the first step. Um, later, they do get up and run back to tell the others the good news. But the first step is Jesus recognizing them in who they are and where they are and having full uh, sympathy with them. OK, so this is important because I think it reaffirms God as a true father in this moment. Jesus said, if we want to know God as the father, look, look at me, he says um, that that child that was not seen child in you the child you were that was not heard that was not taken seriously whether it was intentional or not that that wound that you got there that is first touched by a father who says now i see you i feel with you right now in that moment if i can hear this if i can really understand this that this is what god says um, in that moment, I am freed again, maybe for the first time, to be a real child again, okay? as a child should be, vulnerable, open, dependent. I don't have to deny myself that childlikeness by refusing to be weak, refusing to be vulnerable, refusing to be needy, closing myself off to dangerous intimacies or possible rejections. Okay? God, God the Father has my back. with this compassionate um, recognition but it isn't just compassion remember it also involves this promise of justice which is another way of feeling recognized Uh, remember as we heard jesus telling not just the adults but also telling the children if someone has misled me as a child there will be justice for that either that person or Christ in his or her place, will answer for that wound. It matters that it receives an answer. Okay? And Christ came for that reason, we are told, so that no one would have to answer it for themselves if they understand what they're asking for. Okay? Someone will answer for it. This is part of what Jesus promised. So there is this compassionate recognition of where I am and the pain I feel. There is this promise of justice. Then uh, also there is this promise of healing or or growth, I guess it's better to say, in a healthy direction, the the everlasting way. The justice God brings is never uh, a justice in terms only of balancing the books or answering crimes. Jesus came not just to die, but to live again, we are told, to be raised. From the dead, and to lead anyone who would follow him in this new and living way, as it's called in Hebrews chapter 10, a way where mistakes may still be made, but no longer ever have the right to claim the last word. So here we come to the last part, the last part of the lecture. It may sound strange uh, at first, but but pay good attention because there's something very interesting uh, and amazing in what God offers us here at this point. There is, um, in in walking on the path of pain, a certain responsibility that I have, especially once I realize what I've been doing. Um, I have to recognize that maybe even though I was not at fault for the wound that I received, uh, the wound that set me on that path. That wasn't my fault. But maybe for many years since then, I have been the one walking uh, on that path. I may have become uh, the one, especially now as an adult, following the oath that I made, living according to the laws that I think I discovered. And if I see that those may be false, that they may be cheating me of some of the very things I was built by God to long for. And to be open to. Then I have been in some ways doing that to myself. This is something that David is asking for in Psalm 139. Help me see that, he prays. But why? Here's the point. So that I can ask forgiveness for doing that. And that I can be forgiven for it and be set on a path of healing. Now I have to be very clear here. I'm not asking for forgiveness for what happened to me, right? As though it were my fault. That's not what I'm asking forgiveness for. God has been very clear with me already that that was a tragedy, right? That it deserves tears. Uh, And you can even say that it was a crime that deserves an answer. Okay, so that's not what I'm asking forgiveness for. But since then, maybe I have taken over the role that has kept part of myself on that path, cheating myself, robbing myself, uh, denying things in myself that are actually beautiful and right. Maybe I've even passed on a wound to other people out of my own pain. Okay, and for those mistakes, for my neighbor as myself, yeah, for those I can find forgiveness. And as, as strange as it may sound, I can promise you there's a special empowerment. And asking this forgiveness. okay? It's not groveling in my ugliness before some kind of cold authority at all. Uh, In in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, we are reminded that Jesus is not a high priest who does not sympathize with our weaknesses. It says he was tempted in every way that we are. He understands, in other words, why we went on the path that we did. Even if it's a path of pain, he understands why we do that, why we did it. He sympathizes with that, he says. Therefore, we should never have any shame or fear or hesitation when asking for his grace in these matters. But, But beyond that, what's really special and what's really empowering, I think, about such a moment is that you should notice that by making this an issue between me and God, between me and Christ in this moment, about my life and how I am living it now, how I have responsibility for, for it. Someone else is basically removed from the scene, removed from the equation. And that's the parent or whoever did it. Okay? It's not yet about me forgiving that person or anything about that person really. It's simply about me as a child of God being able to let go of a false lesson that I received somewhere, which now I may have taken over and become responsible for continuing to live on and to walk in by myself. Okay, So this is between me and God about something I'm doing now. And I can let it go. I can be forgiven for living by an oath that has been keeping a wound open in my life. I can lay it down. I can say, I don't want to live anymore by the false lesson that I once learned. As a child, I couldn't see it. I didn't know any better, Uh, but now I do. And because God forgives me for doing it, I can forgive myself for doing it. I can leave that path in grace. And the beauty of this offer is that. Without at all taking away the idea that I have been a victim, it also doesn't leave me as a victim anymore. It allows me to stand up in God's grace and to take new free responsibility for who I am. Just as I was set free to be a child again in God's compassionate recognition, here I'm also free to be a true adult in Christ. Uh, Leanna Payne puts it this way. Uh, the therapy here, the therapy simply meaning a, a way back to health, the therapy here is not just one of analyzing the problem or even of empathizing with it or even attempting to make the person feel better about himself. It is bringing in the healing of Christ and helping the sufferer to confess his sins. Again, remember, be clear this is not just about groveling in guilt or something like that. Remember, this is before the high priest who sympathizes with the pull we experienced in our pain to make every oath and to take every defense mechanism we've taken on. He still sees it as wrong. and We'll call it a way of pain. But Jesus fully gets it why we went there. That's what we're told. But it was all an echo of a crime. And it, and it kept a wound open. And for that part that we took over in our lives, for breaking ourselves down further, maybe even others, we do need his healing grace and the forgiveness for doing that to ourselves. And we need to have no shame about it. Just ask for forgiveness. And again, why? Why? Just to please the boss? Just to make God happy? Because he likes forcing us to admit our mistakes? that's not it. It's just the opposite. The whole point, remember, was to set us free to begin walking on the everlasting path, a different one. I hope hope that's clear by now. Um, And and do notice, I've I've tried to be careful to say, begin walking on the path or growth in the direction of healing, because for most of us, it doesn't just come all at one blow all at once, arriving somewhere as as a new direction, uh, being put on a new path. Well, this is, this is kind of where I want to end. Um, come back around now to the point of Henry Nell's book, The Particle Son. The point was, as we said, that being restored in their childhood by the gracious father, that they now, in the same grace, can grow to become loving adults themselves. Uh, that I can begin by, by realizing the need to turn and, and forgive myself, maybe now, I can also, as an adult, realize the need to turn and forgive those at whose hands I received this wound. And so this is the last point. Not just letting it go. Not justifying at all why it happened for that person. Not just saying, well, nobody's perfect. But being very clear that something went wrong. A mistake was made. Being very clear to remember God's promise to answer that mistake, I can still stand up in a new free adulthood and forgive that person for what they did to me. To let them go into God's hands, where they will either find justice or the forgiveness of Christ if they realize what they're asking for. I can then, as this final last part, uh, be free from the burden and the confusion of dealing with that injustice anymore by myself. Again, this isn't something that in the first place has to be told to the parent. I don't think so. In fact, I think better not. This is something that is first simply spoken to God between me and him. I want and I'm able to stand up and also forgive. Uh, Leanna Payne describes it very well like this. In this way, the son or daughter can begin to see himself or herself as the blesser and is no longer to agonize over or suffer from the fact that the parent was and perhaps still is unable to bless me. I can step past that and stand up and become the one who blesses. The way is now open for the son or daughter to accept himself and herself because in, in, in praying. And forgiving and praying a blessing on the parent, the child also acknowledges and receives the blessing of God upon that part of himself or herself that was inherited from the previously unacceptable parent. Okay, This is a very interesting thing that can happen. Did you notice that? Part of my own inner healing comes, can be taken even further, as I pray for the forgiveness and the blessing on the offending parent. Because in some way, it may acknowledge that whatever part of them I might have inherited also gets blessed in this, forgiven and set free. Um, And that may really be needed. Because Cloud and Townsend, uh, in that other book, How People Grow, also tell us why. It may be really needed because if adults have not grown up in this way to be equals with other adults, as the Bible teaches, They will forever experience other people, their peers, even, as faulty parental figures. They will feel below others, therefore subject to people's approval or judgment in an unhealthy way. And it feels like a state of being perpetually guilty until proven innocent. And they say people stuck in this position must see this state of shame as a sign that they've given other people the position of God as parent in their lives. But they can move out of this position of being such a child and be adopted by God and answerable to him. In this way, they can become free. Okay, so receiving my own forgiveness for what I've done to myself it can set me on the everlasting path. And maybe one of the steps of that new path is being able not just to receive but also to give grace wherever I need to and the other relationships that come and go in my life. So I've tried to repeat, this is a process, a growth, a direction. Um, There may be many days when I need to pray it again. Search me, Lord, and know me. See if there still is a way I'm walking on the path of pain. Uh, Set me further on the path of shalom. In fact, I think Why not learn to pray this every day? It's a brave prayer, but it's a good one. Um, So just to summarize, remembering each time, each time I do pray, remember, there is this compassionate recognition and and the listening of the sympathetic high priest. No shame in asking for help there. Remembering the promise of justice that God has given me and the answer that Christ has provided uh, with his death But then also, of course, the promise of a new and a living way, which he gives us with his resurrection. It's all there in the gospel. And in this way, uh, we're set free to be both his children and his adults, step by step, in a real relationship, trying things, making mistakes, maybe even encountering new wounds. But remembering we never have to let those wounds or the false paths we choose in response to them. We we never have to let those have the right to define us or the last word. Okay, that was a lot. Um, I know it might've raised a lot of questions. Um, So I wanna take some time to to talk together now. Also, if there's anything we need to revisit or to make more clear or other things you've thought of, wanna bring up, i leave it up to you. I'm gonna let uh, Hannah also be the boss here and the timekeeper so you, you watch the clock and you, and you say when it's uh, sure
1: think
0: when it's enough.
1: Yeah, In the meantime the,
0: the meantime the sun has come up here so feel <laughs> normal again no <laughs> uh, okay. Thank you for paying attention also on Zoom. I know this is a, is a weird way to really interact um, but um, we did what we could.
1: Thank you, Rob, for your talk. Um, sure. As we move into our discussion, I'll just give some, some quick uh, to-dos. Uh, just yeah. because he's online, for those in-person, if you guys want, have a question, if you wouldn't mind raising your hands and if you're able, moving into this spot so he can see you and hear you pretty clearly. If not, I'll try to uh, explain it as best I can on my end but for those online if you have a question feel free to um enter your question in the chat or raise your hand and we'll call on you too um, i had a quick question sure to get us started I have to mm-hmm. it. <laughs> because i was writing it down but i guess i was trying to figure out a way um because you said like we need to kind of give up those those oaths that we have claimed for ourselves and yeah. continued that that path of, of hurt um, from from when we first had it and I was trying to figure out you know how to kind of discern the difference between what we've continued ourselves and the appropriate blame that should be set on the person who originally hurt us you know right and, um, I don't know how would you how would you discern between you know what to repent of I guess mm. question
0: yeah. Good question and, and I'm glad you asked because I want this to be really clear. Um, I definitely not taking ownership or responsibility from the fact that we were hurt <laughs> in the first place, right? And I think as most um, most writers and, and most uh, therapists will tell you, it's as a child, I think not so consciously clear that I'm deciding now, never to open my heart again or I'm deciding now never to trust again or never to look for approval again. It's not that conscious and and deliberate. Um, But I I think the word oath is interesting because I've seen in my own kids, um, even at a very, very, very young age, three, four, you can see a child making a decision. You can see something happening uh, that's Um, you wish you could take it back and and, and you know, it's going to have an effect. So, okay. That for the child receiving this is never the child's fault. I think that that's no matter how much a child is, is hopping up and down or doing something distracting or, or, or even what they know they're not supposed to do. I still think um, there's, as Jesus said, A responsibility of the parent not to mislead, not to exasperate, Paul's words later, their children. Um, But I think as we grow up and we start to discern, hey, maybe I see a pattern in how I'm dealing with people, you know, as Cloud and Townsend suggest. Maybe I sort of put people in a sort of false parent position uh, in my relationships and how I interact with my boss or my colleagues or my teachers, or, or maybe even my partner, to notice with some help, hey, I, I, I placed them in a weird um, kind of authority position that is inappropriate and that, that doesn't fit the situation. And to recognize, oh, maybe this traces back to something I became afraid of, or something I became worried about or suspicious of, and I think at that point, I can start to maybe it helps them to be specific, to say, not necessarily to my parent, but to these new situations and these new people. I, I may be being unfair to them and to myself by introducing this dynamic and thinking that in the newer adult situations, it helps to distinguish, OK, I am now the one acting in this way. Maybe I was taught it. Maybe I was pushed into it. I've been scarred by something that has got me on this path, but I am now the one doing it. Um, That's the hard part to hear in that message about repentance. You used the word repent. I think that's a great word, meaning to turn. Um, But it is funny enough, and I've seen it happen. I've tasted it myself. It's strangely a very empowering thing to do because you realize, oh, I can. I'm not just... The victim of what happened, permanently doomed to stay on something. I I can take ownership of it, in other words, and say, okay, this is something I don't want to do uh, anymore. Um, But maybe that's a long answer to your short question of of trying to distinguish situations and say, okay, now I am the one carrying out this, uh, the content of this oath, this law, rather than uh, just looking at where it came from. Does that make any sense or is that? What you yeah. meant?
1: Yeah, that was that was really helpful. Um, I think Brett, you have your hand up.
2: Yes, uh, Rob, just a marvelous uh, lecture. Can you hear me? I can oh, hear you,
0: Brett. Yes, thanks.
2: Just a marvelous, marvelous lecture. Could you just explain a bit more how we uh, the allowing of others to be our parents? How that? Could you just expand that a bit?
0: Sure. How yeah, I develops? think. Sorry, say it again.
3: Yeah,
0: how that develops. How that
3: develops, yeah. How we allow others
0: well,
2: to be our parents.
0: Um, <clears throat> yeah, but uh, maybe best just to take examples. You know, I, I think uh, there could be, well, I, I, here's a good one. Uh, I, I told you one story about the young boy that wrote a story and had given it to his uh, father for hopefully approval and and maybe even reward and and had been hurt by how it had fallen on the floor. That guy was a PhD student and was in the midst of having to realize this is how, this was a conflict he was bringing into every uh, new relationship he had with teachers and supervisors that what he would write and work on, he would be bringing to this sort of father figure in a professor who was his advisor and okay, in a certain hierarchy in university, but more or less a peer, another adult. And it was, it was um, affecting his ability to receive criticism in a way that was completely out of hand. Um, it was, he was unable to receive critique and to take it as constructive and to be something he could work on with this partner who was trying to bring him further in his education. And it became this sort of child's soul that was brought on a plate every time to the professor to be accepted and, and embraced or rejected and, and, and left in the corner crying. And it was, he, he realized it was, there was much too much uh, strange, deep emotional investment in this relationship with, a, with the supervisor that, that wasn't appropriate. That could be one kind of example. Um, I think we can often develop these kinds of things with, with bosses that give us an echo of a bad experience we, we had at the hands of a dad or a mom or a coach, you know, or maybe even a partner, you know? And maybe uh, that, that affects relationships um, and, and marriages. I've also understood, you know, echoes of things that when, when, when somebody uh, is allowed to come close into your life, the threat, Um, with which I react to someone critiquing me, someone challenging me, or someone maybe even asking me to be over vulnerable. When they haven't really done anything yet to deserve my fear or resistance, if I'm still giving fear and resistance, I might be translating that that old situation into a new one um, unfairly. Is that that what you mean? That kind of pattern?
2: Yes, yes, yes. I just... of get that through
0: my mind as to how that how we transfer that to others yeah yeah it's a tricky thing and and of course uh, other people do make mistakes right i mean maybe that that phd student's supervisor might have been an authoritative jerk you know he might be calling up you know the memory um, uh, so these things can happen but it, it can help sometimes to take a little inventory inside and say am i Am I projecting, you know, sometimes the word, an old situation onto a new one unfairly, uh, unfairly to myself and to the other person? Anybody else have examples of that or things that you can think of?
1: We have another question after. Okay. Head up, okay?
4: Or the new question is fine too, sure. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. I really appreciated hearing your interpretation of Psalm 139, the walking in paths of pain. Oh, okay. It's very helpful. Mm. Um, you describe the earliest wound as being mm. foundational to the rules we adopt. Yeah. And the oaths we take. Now, in life, we accumulate wounds all the way along, mm. and they all have an impact on us yeah so my question is are are those is that early wound so foundational that it forms the lens by which we perceive the later wounds or or do the later wounds
0: form their own oaths and and rules yeah great question yeah oh that's a great question I, i i think the answer's probably already in your question. I'm sure, I'm sure new wounds come that, that are fresh and that can hurt us in different ways. I um, I think the the helpful thing about looking for an early one isn't that it offers a magical algorithm or solution for understanding the rest of the things in my life. But I think what Adler was saying, which I find actually quite true and quite helpful is if, if I can look back at to when I was beginning consciously to sort of write my story or to uh, build my understanding of the world it's uh, it's often there at a very early stage that some things get set in concrete um, in, in a way that I'm less conscious about so there is a chance as you say that later wounds and disappointments are are understood through that filter and that it just sort of compounds or that these, these old uh, laws are reinforced each time by a new disappointment. I, I think that's often the case. And I, I remember another therapist telling me, it's like when you, you have a shirt with many buttons, maybe you've done this early in the morning, you're putting your shirt on and you start to button it up, but you get to the top and you realize, oh, I was off one button and, and you can't just, you know put it, force it in. You got to unbutton the whole thing and go all the way. And that that's sort of the idea Adler was getting at, that that can be true. But again, don't want to make that sound like a, a too huge of an assignment. Of course, as, as young kids or as teenagers, or maybe even as adults, we can be hurt uh, and traumatized in new ways by new things. Of course, I imagine. And to me, that's the, the beauty. I mean, in a way, it's kind of difficult and sad to realize it, that we're going to go through life being wounded. I mean, how fun does that sound? But the, the beautiful thing is that uh, Psalm 139 is available there as a prayer whenever we need it. And as a reminder that we're not alone uh, in those wounds, that they don't need to define us, and whether they are deep and old or echoes of a deep old one, or a brand new one. Yes, and whether it's... We can bring them, yeah.
4: But, but I'm sure you're right. There can be new fresh ones too. And, and whether it's the original wound or subsequent wounds of which I may have been innocent, mm-hmm. what, what you're describing is how that innocence is transformed to my responsibility and my sin for carrying on that path of pain. Yeah. Yeah. So wh- where, wherever the wound occurs,
0: that analysis still can apply. Yeah, I hope. I, and again, it's—I mean, it's—it's it's right there in the psalm. I—I—I I, I really appreciate that about the Bible. That it, this one isn't isn't too hard to to dig out or, or interpret. It's right there. In fact, it's kind of funny if you read the psalm as a poem. Yeah. Um, you remember how it begins. Right. Not just how it ends, but how it begins. It says, God, you have searched me and you know me. So you, you, we could say, well, why at the end then does he ask God to search him and know him? If he started by saying it's already done. Well, oh, that, That's because I think that indicates this is an ongoing thing.
5: There he are God searched
0: him. But yeah, it's something each each time we can ask and begin again. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. No, you too. Thanks. No Hey Rob. Hey, dude.
2: <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you too. So I know that this is mostly from the perspective, and I don't know if you covered it, but this is mostly from the perspective of those who have been wounded by their parents. Mm. But what advice would you give to the father who's sinful? Talking about myself. How do you how do parents help ameliorate this or help this along in their child planting seeds of hope, forgiveness, repentance, et cetera?
0: Yeah. Wow, that's a tough one. But yeah, good. Um, hmm. we uh Julia and I talked briefly uh before the evening started and we we're talking about movies. Um where this topic comes up, and I, I've seen one quite recently that I would highly recommend to everybody. Um, it's a, a, a lesser-known film called Ad Astra
3: with um, mm.
0: Brad, Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones. And uh, without giving anything away of the story, um, sometimes the problem is parents don't recognize or admit anything And maybe never will. And that makes this a tremendous burden and difficult. And even still not the end of the story for children, uh, thankfully. But um, that film being an example, I think, of what not to do. Mm. (laughs) Sort of the indirect answer to your question is, I think it's really important for parents. If this discussion comes up late in life, to be open to hearing what your adult children have to say. Uh, You'd be shocked at how little that happens. Mm. Um, Parents, I think once their children have grown up, um, my oldest kids are 21 now, so I'm I'm starting to enter this zone. And it is a hard one because you realize, well, that was it. That was your chance. (laughs) And uh, now they might come back with some things that I can't change or fix anymore. So, the pressure to admit becomes not just, okay, what can we do now? It feels more like a condemnation and, and parents are terrified of this terrified because it's a condemnation of your job as parents. Uh, but, but to be able to op- be open and listen to it is really important. Um, I think maybe part of the model that we describe here of going to God alone first is important for parents to do first as well, because if I recognize and know what I have done or am doing wrong as a parent before God, that can help prepare me to be able to be more open and honest about that also towards my children. So that as a personal uh, thing, I think the other thing is if your children are still young and, um, and you're raising kids, um, to really foster uh, atmosphere of communication, open communication is really important. Like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Jesus knew all the answers already, but he said, why are you sad? What things? And to really be open uh, to letting the child figure out how to say that and to describe it themselves. And that's not always easy because they might say things you don't like to hear and and, and that challenges your own security as a parent, and your own uh, opinion, maybe even. But to sort of foster a relationship of communication can help because if your kids can learn to tell you when you are wrong and this can become a a, a constructive conversation at home, Mm -hmm. man, you, you are giving them a great gift uh, to be able to move forward in the world as adults, to be able to name things that have gone wrong without throwing a tantrum and to be able to hear and understand and give and receive forgiveness as a normal part of living. Now that's easier to say than to do, but I'd I'd say those things.
2: That's really helpful. Um, I don't think that, um, goes beyond. Uh, in one of our conversations, I don't think that I'm breaking any confidence here. Uh, <clears throat> I still remember a lovely story you, you told me about uh, a time that your child came up to you. You always kind of told your children, you know, is there anything that I need to be forgiven of or things like that?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of your children came at one point and said, uh, you know, I want you to know that I've forgiven you. Mm -hmm. It was an overarching forgiveness. It wasn't just for something specific. (laughs) And, and you said that that was a real blessed moment. It was a a hard moment, but a blessed moment that, and I, and I, I mentioned that story because uh, I think that this, what you're talking about is not just theoretical. It's something Mm. that you've tried to live in practice and, Mm. um, and showed an openness to your children in such a way that they might be able to process that forgiveness with you. Um, yeah, and so no, I
0: I, I don't mind at all. Did you mention it? I I'm actually happy for it. I I think one of the things uh, on that moment that I realized it's it's good you say it. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the things I I one of my oaths. <laughs> which in this case was a good one. One of my oaths uh, as uh, growing up was that I'm going to always, when I make a mistake to my own kids, I'm going to say, I'm sorry. Uh, That was something I didn't hear at home. And when I figured that out, that I remember the first time I saw it and and witnessed that a father was saying, I'm sorry to his own children. I I was so shocked inside that I was shocked that I was shocked. It was like, (laughs) Oh, wow, that can happen and decided, okay, I'm going to do that. So that became my mission to always say, sorry, when I make mistakes. So I did really try to do that and live it. However, (laughs) what one of my children once told me was you are saying, sorry, because you want me to say it's okay. So he realized I wasn't just confessing my mistake. I wanted him to say, yeah, it's okay now. I was looking for release, not just confessing. One of my other children also told me, yeah, you always say you're sorry, but you never change. <laughs> that one. Okay, So I, I, I had to look more strongly in the mirror about that. Mm. Why am I saying sorry? Am I, just, am I putting the burden on them to fix the problem? So what was very special about that day um, when uh, my daughter came and wanted to forgive me, I would think for something quite specific, but that Mm. had had many echoes Um, and she was 20 at the time. I I realized what made it so special is that I hadn't asked her to forgive me for it. She was just bringing it. Mm. And and I don't know if that's a good rule. I I think it's okay to ask forgiveness. Um, But in this case that made it quite special because that had been something that was difficult for me to untangle from apologizing instead of just apologizing and being sorry and leaving it to them. And uh, so that, that is something I would pass on as advice to other parents just that when you apologize, just apologize and leave it to them for their time to deal with that and, and to maybe offer you forgiveness later, but that you don't demand it as a way of fixing the moment.
2: That's really helpful. There's a couple other people who have their hands raised in some sure. chat question, so mm-hmm. I'll let Hannah do it. <laughs> okay.
1: Let me start with one of the chat questions first, because they have not. All right. Hey, Tim, you want to unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question?
6: Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I want to say thank you for the talk. Um, sure. Hi. And it's something that I feel is relevant for me, although I can't really, I don't know, I, I'm, my early memories and stuff are not much there to like, think back to that. But um, anyhow, I just wanted to ask more about the um, the idea of someone being wronged and then turning the anger back on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of those paths of pain that you talked about. And if you could just comment a bit more on what that looks like and how um, to recognize it either in yourself or maybe in a child, because I think um, we've been talking about how to deal with your own children, but I think in the church or school settings, um, it would be really good if if um, professionals could be able to recognize, like, just pick up on maybe phrases or something that a child might say that would indicate, mm. oh, this this child is is starting to is walking in one of these paths of pain. I think, and this might be one of the more painful painful ones. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Yeah wow oh, that's a really good question
0: yeah how how can we sort of look out for other children you mean i think is that is that what are you asking how can we sort of listen for potential oaths that ch- children have turned on themselves is that that what you're
6: saying um, in general yes and more specifically the path that was um the anger at at being wrong you mentioned anger can be um if you don't know which way to point it you can end up pointing it back at yourself right and i just more specifically what does that that path look like and also the path of healing from that kind of situation yeah yeah well there's probably
0: as many versions of that as there are children i'm sorry to say so uh, any any kind of example we would take might be recognizable for one, but not for 99 others. So I, I'll, I'll be careful, um, just sort of generalize too much with any one example. But I think for, at least in, in the books that I've read and the things that I've learned from over the years, a child isn't consciously turning the anger on themselves. I think sometimes um, looking back You can realize it, that the child blames themselves somehow for, I don't know, being too loud or daring to ask for approval or having done something wrong. Um, And and the decision to be a certain way from this point on is meant to be self-protective. It's not in the first place meant to be hurting myself or punishing myself. Maybe in some cases it it would be, but the ones we were talking about were more like, okay, now I'm gonna gonna take this move, be be careful that I can protect myself a better. The confusing part is that this actually ends up limiting or denying things to me that a child has a right to ask for and that a healthy child should be able to ask like approval or be vulnerable or intimacy or love or to be able to have a voice in a love relationship, all these things. Um, So I think it might, I I think if there would be more severe um, situations where a, a child is like, is clearly, saying i'm stupid or you know or, or the, the, in dutch there's a there's a phrase like sort of a filler phrase when you're talking like in english we say you know you know there is in dutch a way to have a filler phrase vedic feel vedic feel and it actually means what do i know what do i know meaning i know nothing and i remember seeing an interaction one time when um an older man was talking to a younger man and the younger man kept using that phrase as he spoke, what do I know? What do I know? And the older man asked him, he said, you know, you use that phrase a lot. What do I know? Do, uh, do you, should you not have a little more confidence in what you know? And the young guy was so shocked. And he thought, you, you don't know what nerve you just touched. <laughs> and, and he'd been told so often at home, you know, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about that he had sort of internalized it even just as a way of speaking. So something that could be heard. And, and it, it hit a nerve of, of, of insecurity and a lack of confidence that was quite crippling uh, to him. And, and that was just in a normal open conversation. But um, yeah, I guess h- how many examples could there be? Yeah. Is it, maybe you want to re- respond a little more, uh, Tim. Or is, is that sort of the direction you were heading in? How, how to listen to watch these things?
6: think there might be a more, um, I didn't realize there was such a variety in those kind of paths. So I understand kind of the general, um, more general answer and something I'll have to look into kind of on my own, um, kind of in my own situation. But um, yeah, I guess that would be one example is just hearing a child putting themselves down um, like that. Or um, hearing the, what they say to other children. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I can tell you a, a really good resource uh, for me was a book by an American uh, Christian psychologist named Dan Allender. There was a book called Bold Love, and I it, it's it's a book I think from the from the early 90s, so it's not a new book at all, but I, it remains for me one that's really I recommend a lot, and um, and the whole the book is divided into three parts and the whole first section is about unpacking the anger and a lot of rich and 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 biblically based uh advice in that in that book the middle part is about is written not by the psychologist actually but by an old testament scholar about what does it mean to to move from being a child to being an adult it, in God's eyes but then the third section is how to love other people so in a way it follows that same kind of pattern we went through tonight but that the first one third of the book took me about two years to get through the first third of the book okay so it's worth chewing on and it takes time because it touches things that are hard but uh, about unpacking the egg maybe that would be something good to look at if you're curious
6: thank you Mm-hmm.
1: Here's a couple more hands. I'll have Martin go first, and then uh, Irving Carla, I'll have you go next. Stand by.
7: Hey Rob, I'm glad I'm not the only one who takes two years to go through a third of a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to follow on from what Clark was saying and what somebody or I think you said earlier on about the role of others standing in, in a parenthood position, because I mm. sit here as a grandparent. My children are in their mid-30s. They have kids of their own. Mm. And I I messed up. I'd love to start again. And I look (laughs) at them and how I hope and pray that they won't mess up. And I'm not asking for anything that will say, do this, do that, or I'm not asking for just pray. What I'm wondering about was how we can, from a slight distance, as one is as a grandparent, stand back and be supportive, be encouraging without the wrong pressures or the hypocrisy Mm. to stand in as a surrogate parent from a distance. And so that we don't have the sense of the grandfathers happening.
0: Mm. Mm. That's a great, awesome question. My, uh, my mom uh, became christian through her grandmother and she discovered uh my mother as as her own children me and my brother and sister grew older and had our own children she suddenly felt a special call to to grandchildren uh in the same way she'd received and i think the beautiful side of that is that the generations um the grandparents have a special access to grandkids, I think always. Um, You know, grandparents, I think typically the cliche is that you get all the benefits uh, with the new ones without a lot of the responsibilities, right? They always get to come for fun to the grandparents' house and there's not a lot of the baggage that you bring to that relationship as you have at home. And I think that that offers special opportunities for good conversations, for telling stories, um, admitting your own mistakes. However, I would also add, um, I think of, for us as kids, um, we weren't going to be too immediately happy, open, or excited for um, our parents to sort of want to raise our kids. In fact, that was kind of our responsibility. So I think the, the thing to do first would be to make sure you've had a good discussion or two. With your own kids, as you were were generous enough to admit, you said you might have you know messed up here or there. To really be open with your own kids about that first, and see if that isn't really worked through and and uh, and, and recognized and forgiven and and dealt with, and then see as a fruit of that what kind of new openings might come in the relationship with the grandkids. I think otherwise there can always be this kind of politeness and elephant in the room, or, I, I don't know, I'm not saying I've heard that in what you said, but that can, that can that certainly happened in our case. It was something, a conversation needed to happen between the first two generations before it was welcome in the third. Thank you. Does that does that help? Is that kind of what you were asking? Oh, yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you, Martin.
1: All right, Carla, go ahead. You okay. can unmute
8: um, I want to talk about uh, the, the wound of the father leaving. Mm. Uh, that is an intentional wound that, that, that the person creates by necessarily misbehavior. But I would mm. like to bring together two things. Uh, my experience in Africa, where I saw some of this and then my own life experience. <laughs> so okay. I, I start with my own life experience, but just... Briefly, let me try and make it short. Okay, it's like this. Father in war, he returns. Uh, Before he returns, the child learns wonderful things about him. Okay, so he returns. She has, that child has one good experience with this father. Mm -hmm. And the hope of a new life. He dies from the wounds of war.
3: Hmm.
8: And that it does something um, that disen- i mean—disenabled uh, me to ever give my mother, who many years married again, give that father a chance. Hmm. But what I found interesting is—and actually, these memories came back because. In Africa, when I did research among people who had matrilineal kinship system, so the father, first of all, often or an easy way of a father having another wife. So what I found that was very frequent was, here's the, I meet a, a young man or whatever, and he's very angry at his father, just hate. And then when I get into the story, which i not always given because it's a bit dangerous, as you can imagine, um, what often happens is, of course, his father was responsible to his sister's children in the first instance. But, of course, they were now living in a westernized world. And mm. this child somehow or often the male children also have expectation of that father.
3: Mm. In
8: fact, he does not respond to them in the first instance. So I found often a lot of jealousy and sometimes really a hate of that father. So, for example, I would be with this man, this young man, and then his father would come and visit him uh, with his new wife. Mm. And you could just feel that hostility. What I'm saying is that in our society, I always say that our society is going backwards to the African style of living. Mm. <laughs> That's the way I see. It. We we seem to not take marriage that seriously. We don't take uh fatherhood, all that seriously, all these kinds of things. Do you do you see what I'm saying? Mm. And I think it's a great pity, but he, there is this problem that this father in the matrilineal system in Zambia, for example, was just uh, acting according to his custom. Mm. Uh, yet he wounded that child that was his biological child terribly and he left him with enormous amount of anger hmm. for kinds of things in his life and you see the anger in many of these young men in Some, you know or despite the extended family hmm. i just well i just wanted to comment on that
0: <laughs> But I, well, I'm, <laughs> I it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing link I think the, your research also sounds really, really interesting. And yeah, I don't, I don't know I, what I'm speaking about. Of course, is I think more embedded in uh, the culture that I know, the, the Western Anglo-American European setting. So I can't speak too much to what you observed. I'll, I'll trust what you say about Africa. But I, but whether it's Africa or Europe, you know, human beings reflect God's image, and that's something good to remember even if they don't know um, of, of Yahweh directly uh, yet. And I think there is always, as, as you said, <clears throat> this uh, terrible uh, tug of war in the soul of children about fathers, especially, I think, maybe so, of course mothers as well, but I hear, I hear it told more about fathers so that uh, no, I can speak freely about that. Where even as much as you hate the father for what they've done or didn't do, there's still underneath it is this tremendous longing to have the embrace and the approval again. And that is this horrible war that never dies. <laughs> um, so there's something built in to children to want to, to have that approval, to have that recognition and embrace from their parents, no matter what happens. That, that's what makes it so criminal and tragic when parents break it in their kids, because this is such a deep built-in thing to want. And so I'm sorry to hear about stories like that in, in Africa too, but w- w- whichever direction our cultures are heading, you know, please let us as parents t- take care to remember that kids have that. And, and we all are also children. I remember, as Dick Kays, Dick Kies, uh, you know, was formerly the leader of the Boston Library, and he uh, always used to say something I found quite interesting. We, when we speak of children, that's not a special interest group. That that's everybody. <laughs> We've all been kids. We we don't come here without having parents. So it's it's everyone we're talking about, whatever culture, whatever place, and yeah, maybe just good to remember to to. Uh, treat it as a special and precious thing that kids will always look for the approval and embrace of their parents no matter what has happened at the deepest level.
8: Yes, that's a nice conclusion. I just want to say that I should not, I don't wish to generalize across Africa. This is just uh, particular Mm. uh, people that I researched where I found this, so
0: Mm. Yeah.
8: for the answer.
0: No, thank you too for, for sharing another perspective. That's nice. Yeah.
3: Oh no! <clears throat> we still have a few
1: more minutes here. Anybody else? Has
3: mm-hmm.
0: Was it should I be seeing something from the chat, or that you guys on that?
9: Yeah,
1: it was. It looks like we have um, one in particular from Sam. Okay. It says, I always wondered how my ex-husband's dad's version of rejection affected him and contributed to him essentially becoming his father. Um, he never wanted to face his past. This has been helpful. So that's just a comment from him.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I, well, thanks, Sam. And, and I'll add, you know, I, I spoke earlier about making a promise that I would be different from my own dad and always trying to say I'm sorry. But despite that great effort, I think some of the worst moments came when I looked in the mirror and, and realized, nope, <laughs> I'm doing exactly the same things I said I would never do. Um, at the same time as being honest with our partners who do that, also, remember to be sympathetic and 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 uh, embody Christ's grace to them. That doesn't say it's okay, but also says I I understand why that's happened and let's tackle it together. It, it's easy to to punish and shame and push away a partner when they do that, especially because it's destructive and annoying. Um, but try to walk with each other in it. That that will be important.
1: We have a question from Naomi and then Andrea will go to you after that. that
0: Sure.
5: Um, yeah, I was, um, just, I was moved by that part you talked about having, um, Jesus on the, um, Emmaus, um, road Mm. and, um, wanting to hear about our sadnesses and Mm. even though already knowing, and I think accepting compassion from God and then Also self-compassion I think is one, like a really hard thing for me and other people as well. And just wondering if in your experience of walking through this with people, like what are ways to help that kind of move from like a head decision to accept compassion into a way that's more of like a a deeper knowledge or felt experience of that maybe?
0: Wow, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, in most cases, we kind of wish we could actually have a walk with Jesus on the MS road, <laughs> you know, that would be nice. And physically to invite him home and see him at the table, breaking the bread. You know, I, I've been jealous of that moment many times. And um, I think the, the, the embrace uh, that we tenderly want to begin to be open for would be, because we are humans, would be so nice to have that be even even as face to face as a zoom (laughs) you know even even that would be better because it often sounds so abstract and and theoretical with reading about it in the bible but i would say uh, something for me maybe i'll just speak personally was uh trying to learn to pray the psalms um not just read them and not just study them, but really try to pray them. And I noticed sometimes that David kind of like bathing in God's love made me feel kind of awkward and weird. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like you're, you're a crazy poet, Uh, but those prayers are given to us to, to practice even in the new Testament. It says, don't, don't, don't forget to pray and sing and include the Psalms. So they're specifically listed as good prayers. And I think learning to, to pray the Psalms could be a step in the direction of letting it come into my heart from God himself. Mm. Um, that's one place to start, I think. And begin to take risks uh, with other people. Um, I don't know how it is to receive compliments, but... Uh, to to practice sometimes if you receive a compliment, recognizing, okay, what am I doing with that? Or can I, Mm. can I accept that? Can I uh, learn to appreciate God's image in me and myself when it's recognized by another person, that can be another place to practice, uh, which doesn't require giving people hugs or anything (laughs) yet. uh, those are just two things that happened in my mind. Anything else you've tried or tips you have?
5: Um, I guess I mean, I, I love that idea. Yeah, I think praying the psalms is very helpful, and um, I think sort of you know, imaginative prayer, I think sometimes is helpful in terms of like imagining Jesus into certain situations. I guess, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the accepting compliments one is interesting to think about because that. that Um, is hard sometimes but like a pretty low risk way to experiment so thank you (laughs) Yeah. thanks so much for your answer
0: yeah oh thank you for a vulnerable question
1: all right Andrea you have the floor
0: Andrea hi Hi. (laughs) are you are you also watching at six in the morning are you
10: yeah it's it's four (laughs) o'clock And then now it's uh, six. Yes, we are in the s- same time zone.
3: Yeah, I, I have.
10: <laughs> it was a great lecture. Uh, combined many things together. But I have the question or the comment that sometimes uh, the problem is not to uh, know a special point uh, where you have an oath and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sometimes there are family patterns, and uh, one can detect uh, in the job and in any case. Uh, right. You have a lower position in the hierarchy. You are uh, going there in in the newer situations. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of question or comment. <laughs>
0: yeah. No. You no. Know, you're you're absolutely right. That's a great point. This. this uh, perspective we took tonight isn't the really one way to review my childhood or to review family dynamics there are many um, mm-hmm. there, there are many ways to identify that patterns there's even even genetic tendencies that get passed on that don't have to do necessarily with a, uh, an event or a, uh, a moment you're, you're absolutely right so to put this in the mix so, but tonight of, of, of options when looking back, but, but there will be many more. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Thank you. And again, I, you know, don't, don't rack your brains trying to think of a, an early memory because Alfred Adler said so, you know, I, I also don't mm-hmm. want to hold that up too high as the key to anything. Uh, I just think it's been a helpful exercise for some people sometimes to recognize things in themselves. And, and, um, and, and even just kind of interesting just to ask yourself, you know, what's one of the earliest memories I have and, and what has, how has that affected me? I'm, you know, I, m- for me myself, it's, it's a funny one. M- one of my very earliest memories, I know which house we are in. So I must've been four years old is that I really wanted to move into my own room. I remember because my younger brother, my younger sister had been born I was sharing a room with my brother. I want my own room. So I was given the chance to move into a spare room myself. And my, my deepest memory is that I'm looking out the door in the night of my open new bedroom, looking down the hall far away to the other end of the house where the rest of my family is sleeping. And I'm suddenly paralyzed with fear that this was stupid to move so far away from safety. Now, that's kind of a funny memory, and it doesn't have to do with anybody doing anything wrong to me, but it's also been very curious to realize, what did I take with me from that? You know, be careful how much you dare to be yourself or take responsibility or step up in life. You're going to regret it. You're going to realize you left safety. And, and so in a way, it doesn't necessarily have to be deep and painful <clears throat> um, and, and life changing in so many ways to look back, it can also be sometimes just kind of interesting and, uh, and helpful. But, but thanks, this should just be one one piece of the puzzle uh, for people, not, not the one golden key. Yeah, true.
1: We have one more question here. Do you want to come back here, Abigail? Or if you have time. Where are you okay um thank you rob i just really appreciate um uh hang on a sec there i am okay um yeah i'm a counseling intern right now and i just really appreciate the melding together of my favorite psalm
7: mm, great
1: adler one of one of my favorite theorists so okay um just what you brought a uh, couple days before Father's Day,
3: mm.
1: it's uh, very timely, and uh, yeah, I just basically wanted to say thank you. Okay, really appreciate it.
0: No, oh, thank you very much. Yeah,
1: we have time for maybe one more question if anybody has one. Okay. Oh,
9: Elizabeth. Hi there. Thanks. So much. I really took lots of notes, and boy, I'll be processing this. Um, and a couple of things struck me, but the one that, that hit me quite hard was um, that compassion, compassionate recognition. And I know um, wounds that I've had, and I, I know God was with me. Mm -hmm. but but to 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 picture him like crying with me holding me close um in the same way that i would hold my child close when they were hurt um Mm -hmm. just just blew me away that that he would care that Mm -hmm. much for me and Mm -hmm. and see that pain and recognize Mm -hmm. that pain even if yeah there it wasn't so recognized whatever but but for god to um see that pain just, oh, I never thought of it. It was, thank you. I really appreciate mm. it. It was me tremendous. Well, I'm
0: glad. No. Thank you for sharing it. And I, I hope it only grows.
9: Yes, I'm sure it will.
1: Mm. I think that's just about all the time we have, but Rob, thank you so much for speaking to us today.
0: Sure. That was (laughs) nice. Thank you, too. It was uh, nice to do this this way. Thanks, Clark, for a good idea.
2: Are you on for next week? (laughs) 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 Thanks so much for waking up early. Yeah, thank
0: you. Yeah, Yeah, no problem. It was nice. I can go back to bed. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll do the, we have a weekend here. So tonight I'll, I'll lead the film discussion, but that's true. That's tonight. So I have a, I have a few hours. You have time. <laughs> yeah. We'll, well
3: have a good again. day.
0: Thanks. And um, can we close, can we close with a prayer? I don't know if you guys oh, yeah. typically Absolutely. do that. Should we do yeah, that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Uh, dear God, I want to pray to you. Uh, generous and good father. Thank you that you know us, thank you that you've searched us, and that we could trust when we come to you, to see us, uh, to love us and Lord, uh, whatever hurt or joy that it involves, I, I do pray that you would continue to lead us down everlasting path, uh, Lord, that whether it's early steps in that relationship or many, many, many years of steps, uh, whether it's a journey that's yet to begin, I, I just pray for everybody who has taken part tonight that you would bless them, that you would learn to become your children and your adults as you've built us to be. Lord, I pray that um, yeah, as we come to you privately, that we could feel your embrace in all the ways that we need it. Lord, help us to do this and come close and I just uh, also want to bless everybody who was here this weekend, uh, for this weekend, Father's Day coming up. Lord, I pray you also will be in that uh, for each father and each child uh, as they think about it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Amen.